Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much uh, for this Sabbath day. Thank you so much that, uh, that, that Jay is uh, going to be okay again, and we, we really are praying for him, Lord, as he's really been through a tough stretch. And um, Lord, we pray right now as we turn our minds to your word, that you will speak to our hearts, that we will see that the plan of Jesus was in place from the beginning. And we need to trust the words that the prophets have spoken, even when we don't understand them. Because when you work it all out, it's beautiful to see. So bless us today, Lord, as we reflect. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're going to begin today at a most unusual place for a Christmas sermon. Now, one of the impacts of Jay being gone is we don't have all of the texts on the screen again this week. So you're going to have to do a little work with me today. So the Bible in front of you is the same translation I'm going to use. And uh, we're going to start in that wonderful Christmas book that we always turn to every Christmas, Numbers. The Book of Numbers. One of the most famous Christmas books. We begin today in Numbers chapter 22. And we're going to begin reading in verse 2. And we find these words, And Balak the son of Zippor saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, This horde will now lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at the time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the people of Ammah, to call him, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite of me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. Now, in order for us to understand the story we're about to unpack here, in order for us to understand it at all, we have to escape, at least for a moment, our clear assumptions about reality. And we can do this. We do this. It's, it's kind of like what we have to do when we watch movies about Middle Earth. Okay? We just have to suspend a certain amount of reality. Or, or the Avengers. We have to suspend normal reality or even, or even Star Wars or something like that. We just kind of accept the story as it comes. So, so we need to do that with this story. And here's why. Many of the people of the Bible and the different eras of the Bible, they don't think like we do. And that's an important thing to remember because we have this tendency to consider whatever it is that we think and do and perceive to be the fullness and the perfection of understanding. Could we be any more self-centered? But that's kind of how we do it. We assume that we are the height of human development. But sometimes there's other ways to see things. So in some ways, okay, maybe we are wiser than they were in the Bible, but in other ways, maybe not so wise. For as we will see later, sometimes those who think a bit differently 
discover things that are hidden to our eyes. Back to the story, Numbers 22, verse 7. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their hand. That's a weird sentence to us. We, we don't really know what that means. We don't do that. But apparently in those days, if there was a prophet or a seer or something, you, you got together certain monies or resources or whatever it was, and that was the fee for divination. And they came to Balaam and gave him Balak's message. And he said to them, Lodge here tonight, and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam, and God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? Kind of an interesting way to engage, isn't it? Obviously God knew who they were. But God is engaging in conversation here. Who are these men with you? And Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt, and it covers the face of the earth. Now come curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to fight against them and drive them out. God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. All right, so who exactly was Balaam? And what was his connection with God? Two excellent questions, both of which I cannot truly answer with any assurance. It seems to some degree or another, Balaam was a seer, a diviner, a prophet, and it seems his connection with God was not that of superstition like we might attribute it to say the oracle of delphi you know that was the the greek place that the ancient greeks went to to get a message and and we're inclined to dismiss that or or maybe assign it to some sort of demonic reality but there's something going on here with balaam that's different than that balaam had in one form or another apparently a legitimate connection with the one we today would call God. But how or why, I can't really tell you. Did you notice verse 8? Numbers 22, verse 8. And he said to them, Lodge here tonight, and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. Now, this isn't Lord as in title. If you look in your Bible, you'll see it's got the capital letters for each of those. This is Yahweh. This is the name of God. I will inquire of Yahweh and I will bring back word what he speaks to me. Now, how Balaam knows the name Yahweh, I have no idea. Because God only over time reveals himself as that name to Israel. But how does this guy who's not in Israel know the name? I don't know. That connection is not revealed in the text. Now, as we read this story, the story could have ended right here at verse 12. Because he said, these guys came, they want me to go. God said, no, don't go. Boom, that could have been the end of the story. And perhaps to our eyes, it seems that would have been best for everyone involved if the story had, in fact, ended in verse 12. For there is an ill-fated reality that's going to come up for Balaam, Balak, Moab, Media, uh, media and Israel, all of them 
are going to have a bad outcome here. But there's going to be an effect to this story that won't be known for over a thousand years. Now, just a quick crazy aside to the story. The Moabites are actually distant relatives of Israel. Do you remember Lot? The man whose wife turned to a pillar of salt? Well, it's kind of a distressing story, but afterward his two surviving daughters determined that their father must not be left without an heir and decided the best way to handle this was to make him drunk and then while he was in a stupor, become pregnant by him. Very uncomfortable story. According to Genesis chapter 19, their plan works and both daughters become pregnant in what is reported to be a one-and-done type scenario. Now they both give birth to a son. The name of the son of the younger daughter is Ben-Ami, who would go on to become the father of the Ammonites, the people after whom the modern city of Ammon, Jordan, is named. But the Ammonites don't figure into this story. That's a complete aside. The name of the son of the older daughter is Moab, and he becomes the father of the Moabites, the people who are now contacting Balaam, who has some connection with Yahweh, we don't know, in order to see Israel destroyed. And did you catch, happen to catch the mention of the Midianites? They are relatives of Israel as well, and will show up in the rest of the story of Israel much sooner than later. How are they relatives? Well, strangely enough, they are in fact directly descended from Abraham. If you look at Genesis chapter 25, verses 1 and 2, you will find this rather unusual inclusion. This is after Sarah has died. This is the report that's given. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. How many of you remembered those sons of Abraham? We kind of only think of Ishmael and Isaac, don't we? But apparently there were several more. It's understood by the scholars that the Midian mentioned in this verse becomes the father of the Midianites. So the Midianites are direct descendants from Abraham. The Moabites are direct descendants of Lot. And in the story, they're both set against Israel. Now, the early Midianites will appear in the story of Israel really just three generations later in the story of Joseph. You remember the story where, where Joseph's brothers seize him from jealousy and throw him into the pit? And then they decide, well, why just throw him into the pit? Let's make a little money off of him. So they sell him to some traders going by. Do you know who these traders were? Genesis 37, verse 28. Then Midianite traders passed by. And they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. Now, apparently during this time, the term Midianite and Ishmaelite were kind of used interchangeably, but both of them are direct descendants from Abraham, either way you go. So if the text has this right, it is the Midianites who carry Israel in the person of Joseph into Egypt, and it is the Midianites, along with the Moabites, who confront Israel 400 years later when they leave. Kind of interesting, isn't it? Midianites were involved in the start of it. Midianites are involved 
in the next phase. But enough about these family connections. We still have no explanation for Balaam, and we aren't really going to get one. And oh, yeah, let me remind you, this is a Christmas sermon. In the end, Balaam works it out so that he can go with the Midianites and the Moabites. And, and that process gives us one more compelling Bible story on his journey, the one where the donkey talks to him. That's a great one, but we're not going to look at that at all today. Rather, we're going to jump ahead to after he arrives. Numbers chapter 22, verses 36 to 41. When Balak heard that Balaam had come, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab on the border formed by the Arnon, that's a river, at the extremity of the border. And Balak said to Balaam, did I not send to you to call you? Why did you not come to me? Am I not able to honor you? Balaam said to Balak, Behold, I have come to you. Have I now any power of my own to speak anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that must I speak. Then Balaam went with Balak, and they came to Kiriath Hutzon. And Balak sacrificed oxen and sheep, and sent for Balaam and for the princes who were with him. And in the morning Balak took Balaam and brought him up to Bamoth Baal, and from there he saw a fraction of the people. Remember, this is a Christmas sermon. Numbers 23, verse 1. And Balaam said to Balak, Build for me here seven altars, and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. Balak did as Balaam had said, and Balak and Balaam offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And Balaam said to Balak, Stand beside your burnt offering, and I will go. Perhaps the Lord, and this is Yahweh again, perhaps Yahweh will come to meet me, and whatever Yahweh shows me, I will tell you. And he went to a bare height, and God met Balaam, and Balaam said to him, I have arranged the seven altars, and I have offered on each of them a bull and a ram. And the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. And he returned to him, and behold, he and all the princes of Moab were standing beside his burnt offering, and Balaam took up his discourse and said, From Aram, Balak has brought me, the king of Moab from the eastern mountains. Come, curse Jacob for me, and come, denounce Israel. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce what the Lord has not denounced? From the top of the crags I see him, from the hills I behold him. Behold, a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations." Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. Well, this was not well received. Verse 11, and Balak said to Balaam, what have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies and behold, you have done nothing but bless them. And he answered and said, must I not take care to speak what Yahweh puts in my mouth? So things are not going well. But Balak's not ready to give up. He keeps setting up scenarios for Balaam to curse the children of Israel. But the attempt fails a second time and a third time. And Balak is not pleased. We skip over to Numbers chapter 24. Picking it up in verse 10. And Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam. And he struck his hands together. And Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, and behold, you have blessed them these three times. Therefore, now flee to your own place. I said, I will certainly honor you, but Yahweh has held you back from honor. 
Well, has Yahweh held him back from honor? Yes, he didn't get paid, but also no. For Balaam is about to say something transcendent, and he's about to see something he could never fully understand, just like Isaiah or Micah or many of the other more kosher prophets did. Numbers 24, verse 12. And Balaam said to Balak, Did I not tell your messengers whom you sent to me, if Balak should give me his house full of silver and gold, I would not be able to go beyond the words of Yahweh to do either good or bad for my own will? What Yahweh speaks, that will I speak. And now, behold, I am going to my people. Come, I will let you know what this people, speaking of Israel, will do to your people in latter days. And then this moment happens. Nobody at the time realizes how remarkable this moment is. Numbers 24, verse 15. And Balaam took up this course, this disc, his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened. The oracle of him who hears the words of God, who knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down with his eyes uncovered. Now here it is. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. Now remember, this is a Christmas sermon. Have you figured out how? Well, let's break this down a little bit. Let's go backwards. One from Jacob shall exercise dominion. So what is this saying? It's saying a great king will come from Jacob. Edom shall be dispossessed. You know who Edom is? Edom is the descendants of Esau. Jacob and Esau, the brothers who strove with each other. Edom shall be dispossessed. The constant rival shall be overcome. Now, there's going to be an infamous Edomite some 1,200 to 1,400 years later, but we'll get to that in a minute. Now, the next phrase, it shall crush the forehead of Moab. Could this be a reference to a much earlier word of God? Are you getting this or do I have you totally confused? Remember this about the prophets. The prophet cannot write beyond the context of his own understanding. What am I saying by that? Well, do you remember in the book of Daniel, when Daniel talks about seeing the scene in heaven, he talks about the angels, and they're writing. What are they writing on in the book of Daniel? They're writing on scrolls. But when you get to the book of Revelation, and John sees a vision of heaven, what are they writing in in the book of John? They're writing in books. So do you suppose if one of you saw a vision of heaven right now, they'd be tapping on an iPad? 
You see the point here? God cannot reveal outside the context of the understanding of the one he is revealing to. So this message that he's giving to Balaam is within the context of what he is able to express. Therefore, the characters, the players, are going to be ones that he knows, even if in the long run they will rep represent something much greater than what he knows. What is clear from this message of Balaam is that the ultimate enemies of God's people will be destroyed, and they are, they are described as Edom and as Moab. But when will they be destroyed? Well, according to this prophecy, apparently not anytime soon. Verse 15, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. It's not going to happen now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Did you catch those words? I see him, but not now. It's not somebody who's here right now, but it is somebody associated with Israel. I behold him, but not near. It's one who will be further on in time. And then this part. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Now these words launch my mind down several prophetic roads. The first one is this, and it comes from the last words of Jacob to his sons. So these are words that were spoken before Balaam, some 400 years before Balaam. And this is found in Genesis chapter 49, beginning in verse 10. We find these words spoken by Jacob to his son Judah. He says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall, the, shall be the obedience of all the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vestures in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. So there's a couple connections here, right? This idea of the scepter. Balaam speaks of the scepter. Jacob spoke of the scepter. What does the scepter mean? The scepter is the proof of the right to rule. Could Balaam and Jacob be speaking about the same one? And about this one who is to come, Jacob says, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. When I read those words, I'm reminded of a prophecy of Isaiah that will take place some 500 to 700 years later on. Isaiah chapter 63, verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom? Presumably dispossessing the Edomites. Who is this that comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. So one is going to come in, in 
in garments that are red and stained, who speaks righteousness and is mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads the winepress? Kind of an image lost on us because we don't tread the wine press. But you go into the wine press where the grapes are and you stomp around, you're going to get grape stains on you. Why is your apparel red? Verse 3, I have trodden the wine press alone and from the peoples no one was with me. So this prophecy speaks of one who comes in power, who has dispossessed the Edomites, but his garments have gotten blood red stained and he had to do the work alone because there was no one to help him are, are we headed anywhere here it brings to mind another prophecy though when this one was written I think the author was thinking of himself this time we're in Psalms Psalm chapter 69 verse 19 you know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor, my foes are all around you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. I have trodden the winepress alone, and no one was there to help me. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. And this one, Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He tread the winepress alone. But to what end has he done all this? Well, that brings me to the thing Balaam said that reminds me of another verse. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheph. Can you think of any other time in the Bible where we have a reference of harm to the head of the enemy of God's people? Can you think of any connection there? How about this one? All the way back in Genesis 3 all the way back at the beginning. Genesis 3, verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And now, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. He shall crush your head. This Genesis 3, 14 and 15 is the first promise of deliverance. And it comes immediately after humanity falls into sin. 
And what it promises is that the one who has tempted humanity into sin and has become the enemy of God's people, one day he will have his head crushed by the offspring of a woman. The enemy of God's people, symbolically Balak and Moab in the story of Balaam, shall be crushed by the man of power, the bearer of the scepter, the one who shall suffer for the people to bring them salvation. So what have we learned? And how is this a Christmas sermon? A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. We have spoken of all the parts of this particular word from Balaam that he received from Yahweh. We've spoken of all the parts of this except one. And for this we turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Where is he who bears the scepter? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So now here's what's remarkable. Balaam, in his prophecy, when he was supposed to be cursing Israel, instead foretold the birth of Jesus, the true deliverer. And in doing, added a detail no other prophecy gives. A detail that would be retained and pondered by the wise men of the East for over a thousand years. And what was that detail? The star. The star was a sign that meant nothing to Israel, for they were not heathen astrologers. Yet even among those to whom the clearest revelations had come, Israel had all the other prophets, but even among those to whom the clearest revelation had come, still, there were among them those, actually what I mean to say there is among them who had received the clearest, they had no idea what was going on. Yet among those whose only revelation was limited to a few words, recognize the moment of Jesus' birth in the star that appeared in the sky. Somehow, they were able to discern the coming of the Lord even while all the learned, righteous people in Jerusalem remained clueless. Oh, and one more point from Balaam that even the wise men likely never understood. Note, note the, first, the next verse, verse 3, Matthew 2, verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Why do I mention Herod? Well, one of the interesting things about Herod was Herod was not a Jew. He was king over the Jews, but he was not a Jew and he was not a Roman. Herod was what was called in those days an Idumean. You know what Idumean comes from? Edom. He was a descendant of Esau, the forever rival 
of Jacob. And he was king in that time. And when Herod heard that there was a king from Israel, he was troubled. Do you remember the prophecy of Balaam? It says specifically, Edom shall be dispossessed at the coming of this one. And what did the paranoid Herod fear? When the wise men asked about the one born king of the Jews, he feared nothing less than his own disposition and the loss of his dominion. But you see, Herod is really just a symbolic representation of all who will be dispossessed by the one born of a woman, born in Bethlehem, whose star the wise men saw. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And now here you go. Here's the dispossession part. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Why? Because he will take from them their wicked dominion. And he will give freedom to the people of God. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. We're going to sing a couple more songs in a moment here. Well, let's wrap it up with this. We will likely never understand everything prophecy tells us. But that's okay. If we will trust the prophecies, even when we don't understand them, and preserve the prophecies even when the promises seem to tarry. They preserved the words of Balaam for a thousand plus years. We have preserved words for two thousand years. But if we will preserve the promises, even when they tarry, one day either us or those who follow after us will find the joy that only the faithful can know. And this was the experience of the wise men. Matthew chapter 2, verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they'd offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. You may not be the generation that sees the prophecy fulfilled. But you might. Hang on to the faith. Hang on to the promise. And one day you might be those wise men. I told you it was a Christmas sermon, but, but then most of the Bible is a Christmas sermon. We just don't always understand how. I stand by this claim because, because so much of the Bible is trying to tell us this. Trust me, I am with you, I am able to save, and I will never leave you or forsake you. And what is the proof of this? Galatians 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Maybe we could add born under the star. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. You know, it's no wonder that the angels sang joy to the world. The Lord has come. 
All of this hope and longing and desire is fulfilled now. It was in Bethlehem, under a star predicted by Balaam, that the promise was fulfilled. Emmanuel became reality. Jesus was born. And so I say this. O oh, holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sins and enter in. Be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. Oh, come to us. Abide with us. Our Lord, Emmanuel.